by law students for past, present, and future law students bringing you information to help your career this is The Law School Show with Rishi and Chris Just, uh, it's important to develop extra skills in our downtime, Rich. I, I completely agree. As you were playing real guitar, I was air guitaring. And that's, a, I think, a very key skill to develop as well. It is. Yeah. Very well, supportive. <laughs> I, I try to be, <laughs> and that was quite mesmerizing. So, who do we have today on the episode? Really proud to introduce Mr. Warren Bongard, president and co-founder of ZSA Recruitment. Yeah, Mr. Bongard co-founded ZSA Recruitment back in 1997, so he has really good insights to share about the legal market. Uh, ZSA focuses not only on legal market recruitment, but also on accounting and finance recruitment as well. Yeah, this guy has his finger on the pulse of professional development and has for almost two decades now at ZSA. I mean, he has an amazing perspective of what's going on in the yeah, in the legal workplace. So what do we talk about? We talk about the reality of today's legal market. Yeah, and uh, he also shares a lot of good insights about how do you make yourself more marketable in this environment today. It was really interesting. He talks about how recruiters can help you find your ideal job. And another thing that he shares light on is uh, networking, a question that's on a lot of people's mind. Yeah, and how to do it meaningfully. and. He also talks about what skills recruiters are looking for and how you can maximize your marketability in the legal landscape. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Mr. Warren Bongard. Enjoy. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How's everybody doing? We're doing great, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. So Warren, tell us about yourself without talking about law and without talking about ZSA recruitment. Well, what can I tell you? I am uh, a father of three, and that's always the first answer I give when talking about who I am. I, I love being a dad. I've got uh, a 15, 12, and 5-year-old and a great wife at home, and um, I'm a family man and a hardworking guy at that as well. Fantastic. So why did you actually decide to go to law school? You know, it's funny. I um, I actually didn't want to go to law school. My mother, who passed away 10 years ago, pushed me to take the LSAT exam. And uh, I was referred to by many as an LSAT historian. I took the exam four times at her oh, insistence wow. each time. First time, I uh, I didn't do well enough to get in. The second time, I failed miserably. Uh, canceled my third score because I knew it was horrible. And then uh, the fourth time, uh, I did fantastic. And so I got into law school, honestly, because there was nothing else for me to do after three years of a a BA from York, I felt, I honestly felt unambitious, un, uh, undriven, and not sure what my uh, life would hold, so I figured three more, of school, three more years of school would yeah. be terrific. Would you have done anything different in uh, retrospect? No, actually. I'm actually quite happy with the way things turned out, and, you know, I never imagined, honestly, that I was going to practice law long-term. I was never passionate about the industry. Um, I shouldn't say about the industry. I was never passionate about the idea of practicing law. I am now passionate about the industry, but don't really uh, didn't really think it was the right fit for my personality anyway. Did you know that going through law school? 
Um, yeah, I kind of felt actually insecure in law school. I didn't feel um, nothing came easy to me. I, I got out of law school. I got out of high school with a very poor average and barely got into undergrad. And so I was uh, my my self esteem at that time was pretty low. Um, and somehow I just clicked in undergrad at York University, and I started getting straight A's. And it was like, wow, this was easy. For some reason, the extra time you get during the day to study was important for me in high school. I don't think I did any studying, so you know it just it 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 just worked out for me that way, and it uh, wasn't like I had this master plan or design. I can tell you that. Yeah. So let's uh, let's unpack your story a bit. So from the time that you wrote those LSAT exam uh, to where you are right now, if you can go uh, a bit deeper into that and uh, give us a bit of a background. Sure. So uh, after taking my my fourth and final LSAT exam, which I swore to my mother would be my last, uh, I made the that application. Was on the persistence, by the way. <laughs> yes, persistence. It wasn't mine. It was my mother's. As I said, it wasn't me. But so after um, after that last score came in, which was uh, much better than the, the three priors, I applied across Ontario to all the law schools. The only school that reached out to me was Western. Um, and I remember it was like late August. I get the call or a letter, I think, in the mail saying you've been accepted, which uh, was great news for my mother. Uh, for me, I was like, okay, great. I'm going. I guess I'm going away to school starting in a couple weeks. And so uh, I went to law school, and frankly, didn't find. I found the first year difficult because I was mostly insecure again, like like I've had before in terms of high school. It didn't feel like I, I belonged. Um, even though I had great undergrad marks, my LSAT wasn't fantastic. I didn't think I was the right guy for being a lawyer. Meanwhile, I and after first year of law school, I ranked really high. And I have to tell you, I studied my butt off in first year law school because I felt so insecure that I uh, really needed to make sure I gave that 100% effort. And so when I ranked really high after first year, I finally felt, okay, I belonged. Yeah. And then the next two years was was fun. I mean, I, I did well in school, not as well as my first year because I didn't study as hard, but I, I never looked back at that point. Um, and so after getting through law school, I get this articling job at a Bay Street law firm, which I was thrilled about. Um, I article at this firm, and it was now, you're talking 1990, 91. Okay. Um, and at the end of my articles, I really didn't expect much, but I get the call on callback day, and they say, we'd like you to come join us as an associate. So great news. I've all of a sudden got a job. And um, so I take the summer off, I remember, or I think it was the fall. Back then, you did your bar ads in the fall. So I did the summer off, bar ads in the fall, and then January or February, you start uh, your first year as a lawyer. And unfortunately, it was then 1993, and the uh, the market was in deep recession, uh, early days of a recession as well. And so my workflow was extremely spotty, and there were days where I had nothing to do and days where I, you know, there was one deal in the firm, and therefore I was working night and day on it. So the kind of realization, <laughs> excuse me, that I came to was I wasn't all that happy being slow because I was nervous about what that meant for my, my job security. And yeah. on the flip side, I was when I was really busy, I was miserable because I hated being so busy. <laughs> so it was a real, real, uh, real mixed bag for me. And it, it just didn't, even though it was three and a half years that I practiced, I never really felt like I was in the right business for me. And I was always told by lawyers in that firm that I, uh, I was a future rainmaker for this law firm and that I should stick it out and I'd be a great rainmaker and a good personality for them to keep in the firm. Wow. So it was their goal to train me as well as possible, but um, 
three and a half years later after, you know, being a corporate banking securities lawyer, which essentially meant a lawyer in the recession because you did anything you could get your hands on, um, I get a phone call from some headhunter saying, we've got a job for you at, uh, at another law firm. Come interview with us. And so I met with this headhunter, and uh, she's telling me about this other law firm, which is a boutique securities firm. And as she's talking, I'm glazing over and saying, you know what, I really don't want to continue practicing law, especially at another firm. I actually like my firm. They like me. I just don't want to be a lawyer anymore. So if you had something outside of law, I'd consider it. Long story short, she offered a job to me as a headhunter in her firm to specialize in law. And um, well, not, what a change you know, of events. Sorry? What a change of events. Yeah, it was sort of fluke. And I actually said to her, are you a charity? I didn't know how headhunters worked. And I honestly I was blind to the business then. And yeah. when she explained how the business worked and the model, I said, wow, that sounds fantastic. I think I'm interested. And <laughs> keeping in mind, by the way, that I'm the youngest of three siblings, um, my eldest brother and my eldest sister, uh, at that point, and still to this day, are very successful in the sales business, one in real estate and one in insurance. So here you have a young guy who went uh, to school the longest of the three siblings and yet was uh, working the hardest and probably making the least amount of money in all of them. And that's sort of ironic, being a lawyer, you'd think. So uh, when she offered me the job, I was thrilled. I took it. Um, and I guess I have to backpedal just one minor step on that, is that uh, while I was practicing law at the law firm, because I was not very busy in the recession, I branched out into a business with a friend uh, representing NHL hockey players as a player agent. My, my goal in doing so was really to bring that business into the law firm. So I was hoping to land business through the, the hockey clients. Yeah. And so my weekends were spent uh, chasing 17- and 18-year-old or 16-year-old hockey players all across Ontario. Most Friday and Saturday nights, I was either in Belleville, London, or small towns like Guelph and Peterborough. Um, and so we managed to build up a nice repertoire of clients, uh, most of whom actually never made it to the NHL. A few did. Um, so while I was recruiting for this firm after having qu quit law, um, I was, you know, moonlighting at night with hockey players still. I didn't lose that part of the business, and I was headhunting during the day, neither of which were all, all actually going all that well. And the headhunter, the company, approached me, and I remember it was the fall of 96, and said, look, Warren, you're, you're a nice guy, but you can't do two things at once. Either you give up the hockey business and you stay here, or you quit, or we fire you now. And I said, well, I'm not prepared to give up the hockey business, so I guess I'm leaving. So I essentially got terminated in November of 1996 and was forced to start my own recruitment firm, which I did do then in my, uh, in my basement, essentially. Um, and as I made a, a couple of placements on my own, I realized the hockey business was a big waste of time because after I made math on it, it, it really wasn't going to pay the dividends or the results that I was going to get from recruiting. So I, you know, at the end of 96, early 97, I abandoned that, uh, that business completely and left it to my partner at the time. And then you started the journey of ZSA. Well, yeah, and I actually wasn't, just to be clear, I wasn't going to say in the, the fall of 96, I was on my own. I had a different business name, and then I cooked up with uh, my current partner, Christopher Sweeney, who was working for a big company out in England, recruiting lawyers, and I was trying to send young lawyers to him to place in London. Uh, and the interesting thing was, it was now coming into 97, the recession, the long recession, was finally coming to a close, and many of the law firms in Canada and in the UK were just, they couldn't hire lawyers fast enough. So getting into recruitment really wasn't, uh, my success, I should say, wasn't necessarily attributed to my, my genius or my great idea. It was more attributed to timing. Um, and so when Sweeney told me that after I sent him a few candidates to try and place in London, he said, you know what, I'm actually, I've got, I've got financing from a business 
business here in London to set up in Toronto. Would you like to join me? And at the time, I said, sure, sounds fantastic. And uh, we were having two people instead of one and having some financing from a big company in England sounded all that it sounds terrific. And so in Feb- February of 1997, that's when ZSA was launched. Fantastic. So give me the give me the sequence of events. If I want to sign up with ZSA, I'm looking for a job. I'm, I'm a junior lawyer, three to five years out. Yep. So just to be clear, we don't get paid by the lawyers that are seeking employment. We get paid by those firms and companies that ultimately hire them. So when a three- to five-year lawyer approaches me, if I think or one of my consultants think we can do something with them, which in our business means place them, of course, or there's a prospect of placement, we will invite them into our office for a a 45-minute to an hour interview. We then interview them. Uh, and spend some time talking about their career path, et cetera. And they are now officially registered with us at that point. Okay. And during that session, we will discuss um, if we think there's something plausible, openings that we're currently uh, working on, i.e. mandates that are with our clients and whether we think they're appropriate or not. And if they are, we'd, we'd recommend them to our clients. Yeah. That's a real, I mean, that's obviously a very abridged version of what goes oh, on course. here in terms of how a young a lawyer or even a partner, for that matter, would register here. And are there certain type of skills that you're looking for during that first interview that you have with the individual? You know what, it really depends on uh, what mandates we have at that moment or we predict. I mean, I've been doing this now for uh, 18 years, so I have a, I think I have a good sense of when I see a resume, whether or not I think there's something in there, whether it's the skills, whether it's the volunteer time they spent, it's their interests, et cetera, that I think would be of interest to me or my clients. And so I'm always looking out for my clients, trying to find just just candidates that I think are, are placeable, you know, for lack of a better word, people that I'd like to meet and people that I think my clients would like to meet. Interesting. Are clients coming to you? Um, you know, it's been 18 years. Yes, they are, and we're certainly still coming to them as well, meaning that it's not like we can sit back and rest on our laurels, that clients will just call us and say, hey, Warren, we've got this job opening at our at our law firm. Can you find me some people? Mm-hmm. I mean, as you understand, this is a relationship business. As much as it is with the candidates, it is more so with the clients, and having the client's confidence that they trust our judgment and they have come to trust, you know, if they say to me, look, we are looking for a three- to five-year lawyer like the one you described, you know, I trust if you send me somebody or you recommend somebody, I'm going to interview them. And that's where our relationships have gone from the beginning when it was cold calling and no one knew who we were. And frankly, I was so green behind the years, I didn't know anything. And they kind of knew that. Uh, yet the demand was there, so we were able to sort of build relationships and bridges with clients over time. So for... Just turning it around a bit, so for in the sense that students looking to become a recruiter, what what skills do you think make a good recruiter? You know what I think it's the uh, most important is the is the personality and the sales drive. You know I think I think one of the things we find difficult and my, my most junior recruiter in Toronto right now has been with us for eight or nine years. Um, and what I think that says is that, you know, when we find someone good, we don't let them go, first of all. But secondly, there isn't a bunch of people coming out of law saying, I want to be a recruiter. Like, I, I don't think that's a, a career path many people think of. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the industry as a whole, like the, and I'm referring to the recruitment industry, I think is at a bit of risk in, in this sort of day and age with LinkedIn and with the other sort of technological mediums that, you know, clients like ours and candidates like you refer to, have access to and find can find each other 
uh, more readily these days than they, you know, than 18, 20 years ago when we started the business. Definitely. So I think people need to really think hard about, you know, coming out of law school, do you want to be a recruiter? Well, you know, if that's the case, then what I would say to them is, that's great, we would be interested in talking to you, but they should also think about other career paths that would be in the sales-oriented business, and there's many others, obviously, out there. Um, and uh, having that sort of legal background, for, to me, is critical, because it enables our recruiters to talk the talk with candidates, to understand what the issues are about being in a law firm. And frankly, almost every recruiter in my company have practiced at least a year or two, if not more. So with the competition um, for recruiters, what is the benefit to your clients that ZSA provides? Well, I, you know, people say size or big, big isn't always better. I think in our case it is. And what I mean by that is that our scope of coverage of the marketplace, not just in Toronto because we have recruiters in Vancouver, Calgary, and Montreal, um, when, when a client calls me and says, I need this needle in a haystack, I mean, let's say a capital markets lawyer with very specific trading experience, and, and you go to a, one of our competitors, which is mo- in, you know, the largest, next biggest competitor has got three recruiters, I think, nationally. Um, there's only so many candidates that recruitment firm can cover successfully, whereas we have 20 people covering the country and having, you know, 20 people's relationships multiplied by a minimum of 300 candidates each plus those other candidates that they would get referred to um, is pretty vast. And so that's why I think our, our model and our brand is far, uh, far superior to our competition, especially when you're looking for something that's not easy to find. Yeah, that, that's massive. And yeah. the fact that you've been in the game for 18 years builds sets a such a level of trust with so many of your clients that it must be a lot of repeat business, so to speak. It is. And what's really interesting, and you're right, is that you get, you know, these candidates who we've known since they were, you know, five year, three to five year, like you talk about, 18 years ago. These people are now managing partners of law firms. Mm-hmm. And it's been that has been the most rewarding and satisfying experience for me in this business is to watch that development and to see my good friends and my, you know, my cohorts from law school and the like who are now running departments and running law firms and general councils of big companies and all of that is just so nice to see because when I first started this business, I felt like a kid working with much older people. Um, and the, the, those people that were, quote, much older are my age now, right? So it, yeah. it's nice to see that um, that full evolution of Circle has really sort of come back and helped immensely for me and our so firm. So when you actually started off and even afterwards, what were some of the big challenges that you were facing? Because uh, the market has started to recover by the time you started. Uh, so when you just started all this practice? You know what? It was. It, I, I hate to say this. It was actually easy. I mean, the law firms, not just in Toronto, we were placing lawyers in California and New York. Um, all they cared about, they didn't care who I was, what I stood for, what my beliefs were, or anything. They just wanted candidates, and they wanted uh, lawyers that were trained uh, well who were interested in making a move. And so for us, we could do no wrong early on. We didn't even need to visit with our clients because they just wanted resumes. They were all swamped. They couldn't take the workflow. It was crushing. And this went on from, like, 97 until, like, 2007. So it was, like, a, ru- a nice 10-year run with a minor blip in between, um, you know, the, the, the tech bubble in 2009-11, you know, really did sort of take a bit of a toll, but nothing that was sort of sustainable. So, you know, during that period, we were we couldn't do any wrong, and then enabled us to certain clients just really came to like us because they realized we were tapping into the right talent base. And what kind of changes have you seen since 2007 uh, in the legal market? 
that's a great question. Um, it, it's really become much more relationship-driven where all the law firms in particular are becoming much more discerning in their efforts to hire. Uh, so they're more careful in how they hire. They expect us to do a bit more due diligence on the front end, meaning to make sure we're not sending them uh, candidates that aren't who they say they are. Um, and more, more importantly, the in-house market has really blossomed because the changes since 2007 is that the law departments in corporations has grown, and that means more hiring from our perspective, but also means at the expense of law firms, meaning law firms are losing more lawyers to companies. Um, and frankly, to look at it in hindsight, that's probably not a bad thing because what it does do for the law firms, it builds greater bridges um, and relationships for them to get work from those companies. For sure. And do you see the same trend going forward in the next uh, five to ten years? I'm a, I, I, I think I'm a little concerned. I think the trends going forward in the next five to ten years is going to be sort of figuring out the inefficiencies in the market and, and to be more precise, the excess number of lawyers that are being displaced by the sort of ratcheting down of the bigger law firms, meaning that, you know, it used to be in pre-2007, it was cool for a law firm to boast its size and say how big we were. It's not so cool anymore, if you know what I mean. And now it's all about um, profitability, efficiencies. And so what we have in our market is these emergence of these uh, virtual law firms that have propped up, cropped up like uh, all over the place. And they're comprised of high, you know, high-performing talent from the big firms that can do work at a, a fraction of the cost the big firms can. And so certain clients or buyers of legal services are aware of that and are they're starting to gravitate towards, to the extent that the, the matter they're retaining them on is not, bet, you know, bet the farm kind of work, they're quite happy to go to these types of firms. And the other, the other final thing, I'm, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. Well, the other thing I should mention in one of our, our, our businesses that have grown in the last couple of years is what's called Lex Locum, and it's, it's owned by ZSA, so it's really our business, but we brand it differently, and what it's uh, designed for is also to address the inefficiencies on one hand. On the other hand, it's really to address the electronic um, volume of evidence in litigation mostly, and so what you have is what's called e-discovery that you may have read about, and when you get these massive litigation files and there's thousands and thousands of emails or documents that the law firm needs to go through, they recognize or the client recognizes we're not paying someone $400 an hour and multiply that by 10 lawyers to go through all these documents, what are our options? You know, there was thought that in, in the U.S. there was, you know, sending it off to India or sending it to offshore somewhere where it can be done at a lot lesser cost. What we've got going on here is um, a Lex Locum, which enables law firms to tap into our resources and our database of great candidates who are available and ready to sort of start tomorrow on these document review projects. Oh, wow. And then the law firms hire these guys on a project-based Correct. Um, we hire them, actually. So we we are essentially, I wouldn't describe us as a law firm, but we're the project manager. So it might be a law firm in Canada. It might be a law firm in, in the U.S., which has happened in both cases for us. It also might be a company that says, we, we're demanding our law firm to engage you. Um, and we have, you know, we could have 40 lawyers, and we have close to that right now going here on a major document review project, and they're essentially reviewing documents day and night, and they're getting paid by the hour by us. And then we're billing out their time, of course, plus a markup uh, for our profits, but it really is covering our costs and everything else. But it's at a fraction of what they would pay any law firm to do that kind of work. That's so interesting. So 
Has the market um, developed in any other ways that's allowing um, lawyers to use their legal skills um, in in a new fashion? Yeah, and, and absolutely. And I think this is an example. And yeah. it, it is only that. I mean, don't don't take it as the home run of all home runs. It's a, it's a great example, though, of how uh, the marketplace is crap. I mean, you you guys know and you hear this. I'm sure in law school, coming out of law, you know, if you if you articled, let's say, but you didn't get hired back, what's it like to be a first year lawyer, newly minted, with no job? Well, I can tell you that I'm running an ad right now for a client of mine for a one to four year lawyer. My inbox is filled with probably over a hundred resumes in the last four days of unemployed first year lawyers, and it's a sad reality. It's happened, um, but this document review uh, model I've mentioned is it's it's a way of deploying and getting these young lawyers experience. And so they they hook up with us. They hook up with uh, Deloitte, which is another firm that does it, another document review companies, and then they get a chance to get exposure to legal documents. Now, mind you, it's not like I wouldn't deem it to be high-end legal work, but it is good quality exposure, and plus it's good money. I mean, they can make decent hourly rates and keep their cash flow going, post articles, and hopefully it uh, it leads to something down the road. Because I think in most cases when you've got document review lawyers, some of them have made a very good career out of it, don't get me wrong, and they can make better money than being an in-house counsel in some cases. But for others, it's a, it's a gap, soft gap for them to get something more permanent. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is, right? For these guys to get experience, any fashion they can get that experience just makes it easier to get a position ultimately or even making those introductions to the law firms. Uh, if they like the work, they potentially can even get hired there. Right, exactly. Don't forget that we're not the law firm. Right? We can't hire them, I mean, although the law firm will get exposure to them. And we've had that where we've put lawyers at law firms directly uh, and, you know, let's say there was a half a dozen that we put out on one project, one or two of them would have gotten permanent offers at the end of it. And, of course, there's still benefit for them to have a relationship with you. Of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it works. It's, of, it's, yeah. Yeah, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion in the market right now about uh, small, small firms in small towns being seriously in need of young lawyers. Um, so maybe you can speak to that for a moment, and are there any other tips that you would give to a new graduate to find employment? Well, I, I was um, interviewed in uh, March on BNN, which I'm not sure if you've seen the interview or not, but it talked that. about, you, you guys saw it? Yes. Yeah, so it was talking about the value of a law degree, and I think that's probably where your question stems from, but it, it really is a problem because I can tell you that I hear from uh, sole practitioners and small law firms in these rural areas that are outside of the you know, major city centers that are you know, most cases men, but some cases women, most cases men that are in their 60s or 70s who would love to retire, and they've got this great following, you know, like a great following of clients, and they don't know what to do with their practice. Um, and they feel bad and guilty because they don't think there's adequate representation, let's say, in their local market, or they just don't want to leave their, cl- their clients high and dry. And so what they're calling us for is, can you set me up with a young lawyer who would be willing to move here mm-hmm. uh, and take over my practice? And there's a lot of opportunity for young lawyers to do that. The problem is convincing young lawyers that, you know, uh, uh, living in uh, Ingersoll or living in these small cities that are all over Ontario or Canada, for that matter, is of interest because they're all look, sort of looking for the big big city, Bay Street type dollars and hours, and that's not what you're going to get in those small towns. So that's been our our big problem. And frankly, just to be clear, I don't do that part of the business. I don't mm-hmm. don't want to get into that side of the business. I think it's a great idea for young lawyers to explore, but I'm not so sure that from my business perspective, it's a, it's a good model to follow for us. 
In your perspective, is it easier for a junior lawyer to move from a larger sized firm down into a smaller one? Or, and is it very difficult if you start in a small firm to later move your way up and work into a bigger one in a bigger market? It's, you know, it, currently in this marketplace, you're always better off, and I think you probably know this, but you're better off getting your experience in a larger firm. There's a level of, um, understanding and acceptance uh, when you look at someone with that kind of pedigree coming out of a big firm. The flip side is in, in the first 10 years of our, our business here, we were much more interested in the kind of experience candidates had, and we didn't discriminate uh, about candidates' you know, first year or first few years of practice, if it, even if it was a small firm, because the demand was so high. But now in this market, I think you really need to make sure if you're not going to get work in a big firm, you, you need to get good work, period. It doesn't mean where it is. It's just, Focus on the, the quality and the level of experience you're getting and be good at demonstrating that in your resume because the minute somebody looks at a resume and they don't recognize the employer that you're at, there's judgments that are passed. And we are, we're all human. We do this. Um, and I think it's important to defray that by being compelling in how you describe the kind of work that you do. Good point. What, what are some of the skills that you're seeing junior locker, uh, lawyers lacking in the market today? Um. I, I I I don't think there's anything that we're lacking in young lawyers today. I think you know it's been documented enough about the different generational. Of, I guess they're called millennials. Is that right? I just read an article today about it. Um, I I just think it's getting bridging the gap between the the baby boomers and the millennials and just having a better understanding of how people work and. Um, I, I, you know, the old, the, the, the boomers are looking for, uh, I think, still a little bit of that FaceTime mentality where people are going to be in the office and they're going to be performing during usual and perhaps extra business hours, whereas the millennials are looking to work very hard, but they're looking to work at their own schedule where they can be mobile and remote. And I think that is the, the gap that still kind of exists in law firms and other places. Are there any, in your candidates that you place, um, aside from a strong legal resume, what kind of personal characteristics or career characteristics do you look for? Uh, the first and most important one is ambition. I think people need to be ambitious about their careers and need to really want to succeed. You know, a lot of it is in in, um, in effort and in conscientiousness that I measure as being the most important skill set of any good candidate. I truly believe that anyone that I meet that's been trained in a decent law firm or even in a small firm, I trust their skills, and perhaps that's a mistake, but let's assume that they all bring to the table a, a, a satisfactory level of legal skills. I then look to how committed is this person, how responsive are they on email and phone calls, and how polite are they and diplomatic. Like, those are all, to me, the soft side traits that, you know, I don't always see, and I'd like to see. And it makes it, 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 it gravitates me to certain people that bring those skills and traits to the table. And perhaps that's just because that's the way I am. I like to be conscientious. I think I like follow up and people that are really on top of things. And mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing. I really do. Uh, just to follow this question a bit further, what what are some things you think students or younger lawyers can do to develop some of these skills or to make them more marketable? Um. Make themselves more marketable. Uh, I think I, I, I think uh, you tapping into your sort of entrepreneurial spirit, if you have any, um, is respected by many. So re really appreciating the business model 
of, let's say, a law firm as an example, when you're a young lawyer and you want to get a job in a law firm, appreciating how the model works, understanding where the profits come from, where the money's spent, and and getting getting a handle on, okay, how can I contribute to that, mm-hmm. I, I think is the most important level of awareness one can bring to the table. Even in a first year, you have to appreciate how businesses work and what you're bringing to the table to a, to a business. And if you can't get that out of your head or if you're not, you're not thinking that way, you're not necessarily giving yourself a chance to succeed in that environment. And so I, I think, unfortunately, some lawyers look at this and they say, okay, I want a job and I want to work nine to five and I just want decent work. And mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, well, how does this firm get paid and well, how much are you going to bill me out at? And all those kinds of questions or awareness is really important for young lawyers to, I think, to, to grab onto and understand before they even sort of tackle the job search market. Yeah, I think that's definitely often overlooked. And especially when you're in academic rigors for three years, the whole business side of law does not even cross your consciousness. It doesn't. You're right. No. And I've spoken to a couple of deans in uh, in Ontario, and they agree, but I think there's enough co-curricular activities, at least they feel there is, in addressing this, you know, from the client counseling skills that you develop in those competitions and moots and all of that. Those are all... Those are all, to me, academia. It's not really the, the business side of law and what, why is law an industry itself and how does law uh, stay afloat, right? And I think everyone needs to understand what, what the law firms are faced with and what the small firms and these document review companies and these emerging virtual law firms that are coming up. I think you have to really appreciate what's out there before you can tackle the market and know what you want. Yeah, I think it, it, that there's enough substance there that that could be an upper-year course in law school for sure, one that I, I would take hands yeah. down. Sign me up. I'll teach it if anyone's interested. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll keep you in mind. Well, it's, similar, it's similar to the like the entrepreneurship courses that I've really started picking up in business schools now. Uh, it would be good to have a similar course in law school, law school as well. Yeah, and listen, there shouldn't be less emphasis on the academic side because you can't learn enough. I mean, the way you think in law is most important, but it really is a missing gap in terms of that bridging that that's you know graduating on your last day of your third year into articles. You don't know what you're getting into when you article. That's for sure. Yeah, and we've spoken to lawyers who have left Bay Street after three or four years of experience to go to a small town and open their own firm, and they said, I was just completely in the dark. It was just me with a computer in a room, and it took me three years to figure out how to run the business because I'd never done before. But uh, leaving that for the moment, um, give us a couple tips on how junior lawyers can network effectively. Uh, easy. So a uh, couple of things. They first need to get, in devol- get involved in charities or things that they're passionate about. Um, and I've written also about this in the National Post about what uh, today, and I call it sort of unmarketing, meaning you're not actually targeting people or companies. You're actually targeting an interest of your own that you're passionate about and you believe in. So by getting involved in, in one or more of those types of charities or organizations, you're naturally going to meet people of like-mindedness who potentially represent another contact or network for you. I mean, it's not as clear or as black and white that this person's going to find you a job or they're going to, you know, give you a file. It it just means you're going to meet more people and you're going to expand your own network. Uh, And to me, that is like, you know, I've been doing that since, and I didn't do it because I wanted to get business. I did it because I was truly interested. Like Western, I'm a Western law grad and they, um, you know, many years ago, I, I hooked up with or uh, met with. Uh, I, I got to be careful with that word. I heard that's a bad word for young people now. So, it was a it hooked up. The, the word hookup. I, I didn't hook oh. up in, in the sense <laughs> that my teenager talks about it. Um, I met with uh, a member of the Western Law Alumni Association in some 
I forget where it was. I bumped into them, and they were actually a former classmate of mine in law school. Long story short, they said, you should get involved. And I said, okay, sounds great. And ever since then, I've kind of a light bulb went off for me and saying, I actually really like Western law. I'm passionate about helping their alumni and helping them generate money. And I've met so many people through that association. Uh, and it's led me to so many different directions. And I've been involved in other charities. That's not the only one. But it's just really a really nice way to sort of build your networks. Excellent. And what's what's one way, especially when you're um, I'm finding a junior or even a more senior law student, you, you start to expand your network, but it, it's sort of uh, in isolated incidences. So you might meet someone for a half an hour. What's a good way to maintain a relationship with sort of a – with someone with someone like that it's hard because you can't force it, right? So, I mean, I think if it's a natural good connection where you feel like you hit it off with somebody and that you've got some mutual interests, mm-hmm. the easiest thing to do is, you know, um, dropping them. Let's say, you, well, first of all, you have to read. I think you have to read current events and read, you know, whatever's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, keeping their interests in mind and your own, sharing articles that you've read, things that you like that you thought they might find interesting. I mean, I think that's an easy baby step one can take into sort of building that contact you know it, it, there's been I've, written, I've read uh, books on psychology and building business and they say it takes 10 touches uh, from the first one to actually get someone to, to talk to you and to trust you and to sort of potentially give you work if that's what you're looking for that's interesting and so in the, in the sort of that milieu, I think you want to look at anyone that you meet that you think is important for your future networking efforts, but they may not mean anything today, is to, you know, keep a good contact list, whether it's on your mobile device or computer, and just remind yourself that every so often, you, if you're reading something, and if you're reading a lot, it'll make you think about people that you've met along your travels, and then drop them the quick note, say, hey, I just thought of you, I thought you'd like to read this, and you may have already seen it. You know, just something small like that, but I think it's thoughtful, and it goes a long way. And adding a little bit of value is well, exactly yeah is goes far. I call you, it sort of emotional equity, right? I and mean, that's really what it is. Yeah, that's a good term. I like that. Do you find that uh, using social networks such as Twitter or Facebook uh, help these kind of relationships, or uh, going more traditional routes is the better way? You're, I'd say it's fantastic, and you're lucky to have it. I wish I, growing up in undergrad and law school, had a social network to lean on to build my networks because I think it'd be even better today if I had it. So I see nothing wrong with it. I think you'd be very careful what you put on it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to teach my my young nieces and my uh, my own kids what not to put on there. When I see things, I give them a call and say, you might want to remove that. Like, you know, you just, because you have no idea if future employers are going to see that. And, you know, you want to be respectful, I think, And you, but but it's a great tool to, to build relationships, I think, for all, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of them. For your candidates, do you actually look at their social uh, profiles? No, I don't have time. I wish I did have time, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, I've been asked, by the way, by clients to to review a uh, a Twitter feed of somebody because they had mentioned in an interview they were big on Twitter. And before they hired this candidate, they asked me to review his Twitter feed, so I did. And I was just looking for offensive things. It's a risk management question, right? So you're talking about a big public company hiring a lawyer, and they find out this particular person's got strong opinions on something. They want to know. And I reviewed it, and it was all very benign. There was nothing in there that was worrisome. But I could have found something, you know, had they been irresponsible, and that might have killed the deal for them. So I think it's really important to be careful. Yeah, for sure. And uh, talking about reading as we were before, where are some places where uh, people can access your articles that you have written? So I have this um, iPad app that maybe it's outdated now. It's called Zite, Z-I-T-E. 
and what it enables you to do. It's an aggregator of uh, magazine articles and newspaper articles from around the world, and I essentially pick the topics that I'm interested in. So I'm not like I don't read articles that I'm not interested in. So I mean, I have my own passions. I'm very interested in a few sports, and I'm very interested in the business of law and a few other things. And so I read a bit narrow, mind you, but I read the articles, you know, uh, religiously. And whenever I see something, I'll click, uh, I'll tweet it, I'll send it off to someone I know, or I'll, you know, I'll do whatever I can because I'm actually interested, and I think it's good conversation pieces. So, what about the articles that you've written personally? I was um, uh, well. They, most of the ones I've written have been on put online either through the National Post or through our website or through other like lawyers. I get I get interviewed a lot, mind you. So it's not necessarily I have I haven't written an article in about nine months, and I'm definitely overdue. Uh, but that's that's your chance. Now you have the opportunity to share your thoughts on your own feeds as opposed to worrying about it going on a bigger feed. Even though it's better if you could, of course, but you can't always get the the, the newspapers to to publish your stuff. Yeah, of course. Well, fantastic. Thanks a lot for taking this time, Warren. We really appreciate it. It was a very informational interview, actually. Well, thank you. You guys are good interviewers. You made it go by fast. It was easy, so thank you. This is The Law School Show.